What's Underneath is a CastBox original produced in partnership with Studio 71. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all of your favorite podcasts. You can listen to What's Underneath wherever you get your podcasts, but we hope you'll give CastBox a shot and see for yourself. Hello and welcome to What's Underneath, the podcast that will inspire radical self-acceptance through empowering you to embrace what's unrepeatable in you. I'm Lily Mandelbaum, and sitting next to me is my mom, Elisa Goodkind. And we are Style Like You. In our new podcast, we are going to expand the types of intimate, unfiltered conversations we've been having in our viral video series, The What's Underneath Project. Each week, we will interview diverse nonconformists about their relationship to style, self-image, and identity. Being radically honest without shame and holding that honesty with compassion is self-acceptance. So Lily, what are we doing in the suburbs? of Philadelphia. We're in the suburbs of Philadelphia interviewing Alex O'Dare. Is that how you say it? It is. Good job. Um, You're going to get in big trouble, I'm just telling you, from Philadelphians for calling Mount Airy the suburbs. It's okay, technically so the city of Philadelphia. No, I, oh, I thought that was going to be good to be on the show. No, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Alex is a yoga teacher and an actress who I discovered earlier this year when I saw an episode of one of my favorite TV shows, High Maintenance. I just thought she really embodied everything that we stand for at Style Like You, which is she had her performance was so lacking in self-consciousness and was so shame free um, in what she was doing as an actress. And I feel like for us, we think about self-acceptance as like the absence of shame, being unselfconscious in who you are and kind of owning everything about who you are and then expressing that through your outer appearance and and we are intoxicated by people who do that and so the minute I saw Alex I was like oh my god must know this woman and now we've been here for about 30 minutes chatting as we've been setting up and I am very happy that I followed my intuition on this because she is totally incredible and it was the beginning I just started taking acting classes for the first time in the last like few months and it's been my biggest fear my whole life because I have a lot of I'm working through a lot of like getting over caring what people think and being judged and yeah that's so great that you're doing that thank you I'm so like beyond flattered thank you so much yeah so you it was it's it's cool to I think I'm sure you inspired me in some way even that's so great it was really like um Ben Sinclair you know Mm -hmm. who's the the guy Mm -hmm. on high maintenance and Katya, mm-hmm. um, you know, they really have this the amazing way to just recognize exactly what you're describing in someone, whether it's the, all those qualities you just described or something else. But they kind of knew that about me and Gabby because we know them sort of all together, my sister, from mm-hmm. going to these fashion shows, actually, Rachel Comey shows. And um, we would, Gabby and I would often sort of make create a dance party at the end because she does more um, dinner party event shows you know not really mm-hmm. catwalk and um, I guess Ben and Katya later said that they would watch us dancing and were attracted to that you know mm-hmm. and that is kind of this thing that Gabby and I both have for whatever reason we don't really know exactly why but is that um, very comfortable in our bodies you mm-hmm. know and um, and we like to we're attracted to other people like that and also attracted to getting people who aren't feeling like that to get on board with us, mm-hmm. you know. So dance parties with us can be fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So wait, I can't I can't let it go that yeah. there's what is the reason that you both are like that. It's a very important subject these days yeah. and very important to us and to what we do. So often a child whose parents are a little more needy or 
they, I'm going to say this all in like sweet ways, not to, you know, upset my mom Mm -hmm. before she passes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just, I'm having internal jokes with my mother right now. Um, (laughs) um, you, it's hard for the child to express needs because they're pleasers and they're kind of taking care of the adults. So like, for example, my dad was a heroin addict. He doesn't mind me saying that. Hi, dad. Um, And uh, he uh, was very functioning, you know, level heroin addict. He didn't shoot up. He smoked and he's made a lot of art about it. So not revealing any too intimate secrets. But I would often let him like do his thing, even though I didn't understand what he was doing. You know, like I didn't know at that age he's snorting heroin but I knew there was something happening and I needed to stay in my little area of the law for a while while he finished that thing and then I would come out like when I heard the paper stop crinkling mm-hmm. and like whatever I associated with that and he was it wasn't like he was nodding off or anything he acted totally normal but to, in my opinion and I really loved him and he was mm-hmm. a very loving great wonderful dad um but Yes, I would allow him this thing. And I think that's a really interesting, very visceral, like almost gross, I don't mean disgusting, but obvious example of a parentified child, you know, that you actually are letting the drug addict do their drugs before you even understand what a drug addict is. Mm-hmm. Well, basically, it's a it's when the child feels that their needs are not more important than the parents' needs. Yes. And so they, they don't want to, up, they want the love. Yes. So you don't want to upset the parents. But so bolstering that, the flip side was that, both of my parents were extremely like tender and sometimes I call it a lot of somatic love, you know, like Mm. lots of hugging, cuddling, sleeping in the same bed. My dad's French and my, and is, you know, a nudie like most Frenchmen. And my mother (laughs) is absolutely comfortable with her body. And, you know, she was like somewhat famous for being like that because she was in these Warhol movies in the late sixties and she was often nude in them. And, um, she wasn't playing characters. She was just playing herself. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of women in my life. She's My mom's also the oldest of nine. So we would go to this big house way up north near Canada in Thousand Islands. And my aunts would often be naked. I have tons of cousins. Mm. They nurse. They all, oddly, even though they grew up like very strict Roman Catholic in Syracuse, they were oddly like um, all attachment parents sort of, you know nursing the kids Mm. I would sometimes take a little nip off one of my aunt's titties you know (laughs) even after I was yeah done weaning so it was this very um (laughs) what 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 how how what 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 was the time period of that uh 70s yeah so I was born in 71 and my mom nursed me till I was four nursed my sister till she was four and then all of my aunts they had like each had three kids at least all nurse forever. I mean, maybe not all of them, but most of them. And so I just remember this like very tender, loving feeling towards the women, you know, and being mm-hmm. held and they really loved me. And I think because I was so pleasing with adults, I they also loved me and I was one of the first cousins, you know, so I had a lot of like, you're so wonderful, you're so great. And I guess I was funny back then. So ever, I had a lot of like verbal appreciation, you know, mm-hmm. from the adults and the other aspect, and I don't know if this is in the category of a parentified child, but my parents did give me a lot of autonomy and agency. So, like, they would take me out with them, you know. And uh, my, I would often go to One Fifth Avenue and my da- with my dad to dinner, and my mom would bring me all over the place to parties, and we'd travel. And I, when my sister was born, when I was eleven, I carried her in, you know, a pack around New York on the subways. So. 
I think that kind of physical agency and also growing up in Manhattan in the 70s, so different. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Never felt scared. Honestly, I think there was not a single point in my born and raised in New York that I felt like maybe a couple of times slightly threatened on the street. Mm -hmm. And that's supposed to be the most dangerous time in New York, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I would say I feel more threatened now, you know, mm-hmm. by the wealthy motherfuckers in Tribeca. I find mm-hmm. them more threatening than like a dude showing me his dick on the subway mm-hmm. stairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, well, yeah. Well, I was just going to say that also. I didn't want to stop you short of what you were saying, though, about your body. Okay, so I guess yeah. So I don't know. I'm sort of talking aloud okay. at, with you know with you both now. I. Th- All I can say, and probably some is genetic. Who the hell knows? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Maybe some of us are just born. But there was a feeling of that, I remember, for a very early age, like feeling very comfortable, you know, to the point where sometimes I'd make other people uncomfortable. Like I take off my clothes and do what I call pee like a man, you know, off the edge of the dock. Mm -hmm. But I also (laughs) knew that people kind of liked it. You know, I'd always get laughs or like, oh, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. So even the teenage years when a lot of kids get – don't want to show their eyes. I never had that. Like, I would still walk around naked, you know? And um, uh, and Gabby, I think, is like that too, my sister. I, I, I think this is true, and I'm not sure, that I will say that no matter how fucked up the parenting is on paper, if there's a feeling of love during, you know... Um, those formative... Uh, those like- formative years, like, so birth through mm-hmm. those... Up to puberty. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of shit could go down and you're going to be somewhat okay, you know? Mm-hmm. Like Definitely. you could, you know? Um, there's something, we were talking about this coming down in the car, like just how what a revolution is happening right now in, you know, as bad as it is right now mm-hmm. in so many ways, it's mm, so yeah. dark and so difficult in the society. Um, and I think everyone kind of understands what that's about. But um, there's also amazing revolutions happening and, and a dismantling yeah. of, of, of patriarchy and dismantling of, you know, Western civilization. Definitely. Yes, like the, val- the, you know, so-called cliche hippie values have all proven to be true. If we just think about the environment and like, um, you know, simply uh, pesticides, you know what I'm saying? Like the hippies were already on that in mm-hmm. the late everything, 60s. Yeah. And then it got, you know, so everything they said is actually what is now returning. Yeah. And from I think that, when you from say, that to like our clothing. Yes, and yeah, everything. totally. Yeah. That's exactly actually what it was like growing up in the Chelsea Hotel, which is another one of those things like on paper, a lot of people are like, that must have been insane and like dangerous because there was, you know, drug addicts and cops would come in a lot and, you know, hookers. But it actually was like the most tender community. We didn't lock our door most of the time. I would go dancing at Nell's when I was like 14, walk home, you know, at 1 a.m. I mean, 12, mom. And, um, <laughs> and <laughs> I feel like I talked to my mom the whole time. And, um, and, you know, the doorman who was there when my mom was in labor in the lobby, Jerry would say, hey, Alex, you know, how you doing? Did you have a good time? And, and of course, the community would drive me crazy sometimes, and we would argue with the community, but it was still really felt that way, you know? And um, and moving to Philadelphia, and by the way, I don't know if you're going to keep that beginning part in, but yes, it does feel like, Mount Airy does feel like the suburbs, but it actually is part of the city, um, And uh, but the suburbs are basically right there, you know? Mm-hmm. But 
I do, you know, as a New Yorker, I did feel like this was the suburbs. I get this city more, so now I understand why it's this city. Um, and one of the reasons why it really isn't the suburbs is because you're actually, like, right next to pretty intense, like, sprawling city poverty, you know? And it's so much more in that sense um, eye-opening than living in New York because mm-hmm. you're it's very much more visible how fucked up this country is and the wealth inequality. But I totally got distracted. What I was going to say is um, I did, I do notice, so I went to public school in New York and my daughter for the first part of her schooling went to public school before we moved here. And we switched over to private school here and it's so sheltered, you know, and I really see that and I, and to a detriment, like it makes me sad sometimes. Like I'm glad Louie had that time at PS3 in New York because she's, she brings that here and and it's weird. You see how people react to that. They love Louis. They're like, God, Louis is so comfortable with herself, you know? And so there, and Louis is your daughter. Yeah. Sorry. Louis is my daughter who's about to be 15 mm-hmm. and she's often recognized for this other element. And I do think it's some of this agency that she had totally privileged. Of course, like, you know, we lived, got a lucky little cheap place in the West village. So, mm-hmm. you know, definitely a product of, of privilege to have that, but she was going to the deli, you know, when she was 10, you know, mm-hmm. by herself. And, um, here, you know, people are sometimes shocked with that. We let her ride the bus, you know, just when she was in whatever eighth grade or mm-hmm. something, you know, and, um, the, the money, I think that wealth is such, you know, can be such a disease and such a repression for embodiment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we're, and I know that sounds weird, but I really see that, like, you can see it all over the world. Like, you know, poorer nations, and this is definitely a generalization and somewhat of a cliche, but I think there's a lot of truth to that, are more embodied. Like, we look at that, you know, like working in a communal mm-hmm backyard cooking over the fire with a ch- one child hanging off the boob another child wrapped on your back like that's right. just technically an embodied situation right mm-hmm. and wealth as we were saying it separates mm-hmm. yeah. and mm-hmm. isolates mm-hmm. and creates you know these bubbles here's money luxury. to take care of things instead of actually your aunt or your mm-hmm. cousin helping you yes. or your grandparent or yes um and then when you have all of that around you there's so much else that comes with that like you, you're with older people. Yes. So you're yes. you're you're not living in this. You're not ageist living in. Way. Yeah. You're not living in this ageist way where you don't know an older person the and what they have to say. Not to mention plastic surgery. I mean, it's you know we learn. I know I'm speaking to the choir, but our no, micro. Speak to the choir. Okay. Should I? Okay. Yeah. Because so you know empathy Thank is learned through the child's observing. And this is what I remember, like nursing. And looking at my mother's face while while I nursed and watching her eyes and her forehead and like touching her throat and also with my aunts. You remember is, that? I really do. Yeah, well That's also because I kind of took some nips off later. You know what I mean? Oh, it's right, older from right, my right. aunt. So I guess it's really my aunt's stuff. Uh-huh. But I feel here's the thing though, and this will get us to a different subject, but I my dad videotaped everything. Uh, uh, uh. So, so I have this like... thing where I call them video memories right. and I watched them when I was a kid. You know, he was like a diaristic video artist. Mm. And so I saw that happening a lot. You know, so sometimes I don't know if I remember. Yeah. It. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's a little weird. Yeah. Um, uh, so empathy is learned through children, prelingual, right? You haven't codified your thoughts, which is language, right? And um, 
by the micro expressions on the mother and I'm putting quotes around the mother. It could be the father. I'm just using mother as an archetypal term. So if you were a dad, two dads, you, you nurse your child in a different way, right? Um, if you were a mom who couldn't nurse, you're still nursing your child. So I don't want anyone to think it has to be. Mm-hmm. No, you're, it's a mouth. moment yes. where you're face to face. Yes. Yeah. So um, you see the micro expressions and micro is the important term. And then you internalize that and learn to read faces, which teaches empathy. Oh, I know. Sorry. You mirror it. You start to mirror the micro expressions and in the mirroring, which is also like a improv technique, mm-hmm. right? In the mirroring, you then start to feel it, right? Which is like classic kind of Stanislavski acting method, you mm-hmm. know, like that's how you actually feel the thing. So if we do freeze the face from something as subtle, because now Botox, I guess, is like considered no big deal. Actually, people are gaining less empathy. Right. So we're becoming Whoa. a less empathetic nation. Yeah, and that's not my theory. Like, that's been written Whoa. about, you know, you can look it up, people. Um, that's mind-blowing. It's kind of intense, that's right? So scary. then think about then sleep training your children at four months old, then injecting your face with Botox. I love to look at a real face. I yes. love faces. Me too. I love... And I aging love- faces are so beautiful. And I think yes. it's so weird that we decided, like... And it comes so early. My son, I think there's a certain kind of instinctual, like almost, you know, primordial thing where children are a little afraid of aging. And I don't know if it's worse because they don't get to see it as much now. I'm not actually sure. But I think my son, my six, seven today, seven-year-old contemplates death a lot. So like he said to my husband the other day, I'm going to miss you so much when you pass. And um, mm. and um, and he'll take my hand skin and go, are you old? And oh. he'll compare it to grandmas and stuff. I think that's a natural, organic way of like figuring the out death, death and, you know, yeah. and it's healthy and we need to kind they of like death and all that. Yes. That, yeah. Or even just interest, you know, like what? We're going to die? Yeah. You know, that's crazy. That's amazing. Mm. And because I'm, I'm really about. into looking at death, you know. Um, so mm-hmm. I do think that the fear of aging, well, I'm not saying anything that big deal it's quite obvious is the fear of death Mm -hmm. right yeah so it's you know total fear of looking into the abyss and as we age that means we're getting closer to death right so it's pretty like banal base fear that we're trying to stop Mm -hmm. but that's an and then i do find that that's another issue like the births being hidden and deaths being hidden and that exacerbates the fear of aging Mm -hmm. because once we get kind of comfortable with death we're going to get more comfortable with aging and totally. um, and like that's a cool thing, you know. And it only, which is ba- you know, the precept of all yoga. And when I say yoga, I don't mean downward dog and vinyasa yoga. I mean actual yoga is um, expanding in the now, you know. And so what yoga says is the only way to expand in the now is to look death in the eye, because then we're comfortable with change. Right, so, and, yeah. and 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 it's and it's also in Buddhism too, yeah. like just. Um, yeah. That the way to, I mean, it's it's a real release of anxiety and fear to face death, like yes. in meditation. Yes, I find that. And sometimes I kind of can trigger people sometimes in class because I'll, you know, make some get into death. Generally, it goes over okay, but sometimes I might go, you know, or just my family members, you know, will be like, if I die when I'm gone, I want you to know I live in your heart. And my daughter will be like, Mom, shut the fuck up. Like, why are you saying that? I'm like, well, it's possible, you know. Um, but um, because if we, but I like to, yes, I like to get there with people, even though I, of course, like any superficial things, I'll be like, ugh, this armpit skin is why does that armpit skin like that? Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, I wish I took a picture of my belly before that second kid. It was so rad and I didn't appreciate it. 
But yet, at the same time, when I look at pictures of me younger, I actually think I'm more beautiful now. Like, I feel and the I same truly way. feel that way. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Not saying that to be weird. And I, I, I love. I actually really love my wrinkles. I mean, yeah. I know older people might be like, wait till you're 80 or something. But I, I do kind of feel like I'm going to be okay with it. I like to see how I feel on the inside, and then really try to look wait, what do I really look like? Like just walking down the street, like I'll be like, oh, wow, no, I am, I look like I'm in my late 40s. Like, wow, I've got all these little wrinkles up here. Like I'll be staring in the rear view mirror of the car and just like being there with it, being like, oh yeah, I've got an older face, even though I think I'll like identify with your age and mm-hmm. I'll think you and I Me are too. the same. I'll be like, yeah, honey, when that and that. And then I'll be like, oh no, right, she's a young woman who men and women are attracted to on the street and I'm the older lady who's kooky and weird. You know, I'm like, I like to go Except through all these Except you personas. are, like, I think, I look at you and I'm like, wow, you are incredibly sexy and hot and beautiful because of your, the the comfort that you have. It's like, That's whoa. Makes say. me be, polyamorous be, at all? I heard yeah. it's popular these days. <laughs> <laughs> You're um, But thank you. Should we go back to like our first yeah. question? <laughs> yeah, we got sidetracked. Yes, yes. We finished the whole the dance on the show and body. I will say one thing about that. I could watch that it. It does repeat. annoy me a little bit that some people will be like, "Oh, you just played yourself," and I do want to be like, "Fuck you, try playing yourself." You know, that's hard. Like, you know right. what I mean? So I've had people be like, "Oh, I saw that." And I was like, "Oh, thing. there's Alex doing her thing," and I kind of want to say, "Don't say that," because. That's the actually thing. more difficult. I think it's right. the hardest thing to play yourself. <laughs> so I should get the Emmy for that performance. You should. <laughs> I'm kidding. But it was truly an incredible experience. Yeah, it was that. And well, thank God we have people like Ben and Katya who actually recognize those skills or abilities in people and make a platform for that. It's I know. so great. I honestly felt like. Show. Because I really love acting, but I don't want to do, like, weird commercials. They'll play the middle-aged lady on yeah. some law show. Not that I could get that part, right. but, you know. And um, when mm-hmm. I did that and them letting me go to the place I went to, um, I was like, okay, cool. I, I can be done. Like, I actually felt like if that's what I leave, you know, once I die, I'm cool with that. You know? Can we, I mean, maybe for the listeners yeah. who haven't seen it yet, can you explain a little bit about what that performance was? Oh, and, yeah. yeah. I'm some, I'm a, it's a... I don't know, I want to say the ninth episode of the second season of High Maintenance, and I'm the same character, Gloria, who was in the first season, but with a much smaller part, a yoga teacher, and I'm trying to break the world record for dancing, so I'm doing a self-kind-of-made dance marathon, and it's, I actually thought of it like like labor, so, um, I mean, that was my own personal motivation, Mm -hmm. so I invite people over, and we're having a part, it starts as a party to support me, and I don't know, I want to say it's like four or five days of dancing straight, you can't stop dancing to break the record, and then it slowly devolves into, you'll have to see the episode, but um, what I, if, if, when, if you watch that episode or see it again, that is my, how I thought of, uh, as child labor, as, I mean, as I don't mean to say children working, I mean, giving birth to children, right. I had home births. And so it's kind of like a, almost, um, a home birth gone awry, right. but I went there when some of the things were happening, you know, is that how you managed that's you mean as you were acting that's yes kind of yes like I actually was pretending I was in labor so like when I'm hanging over the chair sometimes I'm doing labor contractions right. I mean right. in my own head right you know right. what I mean how how long was that like filming that oh uh, it was one day I it was a little bit of a Forrest Gump situation because I 
honestly, Ben and Katya didn't tell me. It was like a few days before we shot, and there was a funny thing where they had my wrong email. So I didn't know what the hell I was doing, and they didn't really tell me. And I was kind of like, wow, I'm getting a lot of attention today while we're shooting. I'm not having many breaks. And I was like, this is getting a little tiring. Like, they need me again. They'd be like, let's get her back. And, you know, and they're slowly getting my, like, zombie-ish makeup on. Yeah. And I was kind of like... Jesus, you know, could I get a break here? Like, this is kind of crazy. And then um, the producer started walking with me. He was like, thank you so much for doing this. And I was like, why all this attention to me? I don't know. And then it slowly dawned on me. I was like, oh, this is my part of the episode. Oh. I am the star of this episode. I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then I was like, okay. And, um, you know, it was literally like that. Like, that's how kind of fly by the night it was. That's awesome. And, um, I love that. I'm slightly exaggerating, yeah, but so the intense part we shot the next day was only two days of shooting, and um, I was a little nervous, I will say, the first day, and I called my sister, this will round our subject up, I think, Mm -hmm. and I was like, I don't know, like, I'm not sure what's going on with this, like, my ass is out there a lot, I feel almost like crying I said like at the end of the first day like not like from shameful but just not knowing if it was right or how far I should go with it vulnerable vulnerable. yes I felt vulnerable and weird and she was like did you guys see Crystal Fairy that movie of my sisters it's really amazing make sure to watch that it's really good Crystal Fairy and the Magic Cactus I might be saying that but I am remembering when she was giving birth on girls and that was pretty epic yeah that's so good I know um so um uh I forgot what I was saying. That, oh, yes, saying, I called her. And she gave me a pep talk. It was like one of those like sports movies, but for women getting naked on film. Mm-hmm. You know, like a football coach mm-hmm. giving. And she was like, just, she was like, you trust Ben and Katya. I was like, right. She's like, you know, you, they chose you for this because this is what you do. She was like, have fun. Just, you, they're going to make it look fine. Be in it. Embody. Do it. Just really go with it. Have fun being yourself. And so the next day is when most of that kind of really wild stuff was shot. And I... <laughs> really had fun with it that's awesome yeah yeah so inspiring so wait so and then how did you feel when you were done like did the vulnerability the second day so good because I feel like no the first day yes when I woke up I was like oh god you know I think something about getting to the real spot the second day where I really kind of didn't worry about anything there was also a lot less people there and Ben was more relaxed and Mm -hmm. you know we've talked about this since then and he agrees with that like we was a little nervous the first day and there was a lot Mm -hmm. more extras um you kind of know inside yeah exactly so big party when you know we all know when we're getting to a real place you know and so I felt really good at the end Mm -hmm. I still like I don't know what the hell they're gonna do with that or if I'm gonna look absolutely heinous but I kind of didn't care you know that's cool and there was like definitely I'll admit a moment when I saw it where there was like a lot of like cellulite ass and thighs and I was like oh like I noticed I was like would have liked to be more in shape for that but (laughs) but it's the it's exact that level of vulnerability really comes through and it is extremely it really touches you Oh, I'm so glad. In such a way that I think that there is nothing wrong with any of it. Like, it's, oh, good. oh my God, good. the opposite. Good. So Thanks I mean, that that is that must be. But I do re- very much relate. I mean, empathize with what how hard that must be to put yourself out there. In yeah, that way, I like mean. That. Yeah, hard and also felt really lucky and like this because mm-hmm. I do. You know, at the end of the day, I'm an exhibitionist. You know what I'm saying? So you do sometimes need a platform for that. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I mean. I was like, thank you for letting me be an exhibitionist. You know, like sometimes if I'm like stoned with a group of good friends and I'm going on some riff, I will be like, this should be filmed, honey. Yeah. You know? And so, <laughs> and so.
so I was like, great, got some of that on. And, you know, my big... Someone's validating and recognizing. Yes, and I don't know if you know this, but um, I, you know, mentioned Colin Farrell in the episode, and I'm referring to his sex tape. And, and uh, it's a common story I tell, because I didn't give a shit about Colin Farrell before I saw the sex tape. The sex tape's old. You can just Google it and see it. And he's a pussy whisperer. What does Colin that mean? Farrell. He um, he kneels down. The woman who he's having sex with is a pussy loather. She really doesn't like her own pussy. This is great for our body positivity yeah. subject. And she's like, "Oh no, it's like it's it's unattractive. Ugh, I don't like it." And he's like, "Oh baby, baby, no, baby." He's like, "It's so gorgeous." And <laughs> and he's like talking to the pussy, and he's like, "It's oh my god." He's like, "It's gorgeous. No, stop." And she's like, "I don't know." And then, so there's this point where she's filming him and he kneels down and he's gesturing to the puss and he goes, right here, baby. Oh, fuck yeah. Breakfast, lunch, and fucking dinner. And then he just starts going at it. And I was like, oh my God, Colin Farrell, I love you so much. And now, so I I whisper his name and my dream is... That he sees it. Yes. And and then then you guys have sex. (laughs) Yes, in in the next season. Oh. So that was the other reason why I felt I could die after doing that episode, because I said it to the world. But you only know it if you really hear it. it. Yes, yes. So when I'm singing, I don't want to get to, but the certain thing, you'll notice it. I'm singing to Colin Farrell. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe and give us a good rating so the powers that be can keep this podcast going. We haven't gotten to our first interview interview question, which is just, what are you feeling excited about in your life right now? Doing more, you know, creative work. Like my yoga teaching, I love and I'm, it's like natural for Mm -hmm. me. And it gives me, it definitely gives me a sense of satisfaction these days, but it's there. I never really intended to be a yoga teacher. Like that was a side job that I just ended up now being Mm -hmm. for 25 years, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so yes, more stuff working with people like Ben, with my husband who's a filmmaker. I also, you know, try to write little things and actually I am excited about my little videos I make on Instagram. Like oh, I feel like it is really them. a way to express yourself. say things yeah. that I want to say that's not it's so hard to talk about the things even in a podcast style because I'm always worried, oh, there's a mom that's going to feel bad cuz she's a nurse or there's someone who now feels bad about themselves cuz they do do botox, you know. And I don't want any I don't want women to feel like that and but I do get flack. So for the videos, I feel like I can use humor. So what is like, <laughs> Let's the, hear the, what them. is the point of view that you feel that you find satisfaction and fulfillment yes. out of expressing through your social media right. about yoga? Like, um, because I do think, I think it's, but I, I love it. I actually like see it, uh, yeah. given the fact that we're not in your yoga community, yes, and don't yes. know any of these people. To me, I, I see it as actually like the opposite is actually like a, a way to like bring more people into yoga because I think there is there are a lot of people that probably feel alienated by like the stereotypical yes. like spiritual type of yoga. I don't know. The, yes. The intimidated. Totally. Intimidated. Like I'm not this like hippie you know, girl yes. woman that can be like um whatever. It's, it's, yes. own, it's become yoga. I mean, I can say that I, I started teaching yoga um, when it all really first sort of started to get really big like in the early 90s yeah i feel like yoga too has become like everything else like very commodified intimidating it's become its own like intimidating fashion beauty kind of thing like where 
You, you have, have to have to a certain body. And wear have, Lululemon. Yeah, and yeah, um, yeah. yeah there, there's a certain stereotype that's attached to it now. There's things I'm truly offended and find reprehensible about things that are going on in what I call the neo-spiritual, neoliberal world. And to me, they really mesh together. And so, you know, I believe in a socialistic democracy, you know, democratic socialism, politically. And I was a Bernie Sanders supporter fervently. Um, I found that the identity politics that happened in the primary between the Hillary and Bernie thing to be extremely isolating and also felt I almost lost friends from from this situation. So again, so much to get into that we hard to so tackle, much. right? So I find that the that extends into what I'm calling so neoliberal politics, in my opinion, is encapsulated in the kind of true blue Democrat, which the Clintons represent. I voted for Hillary Clinton, by the way. Um, Finally, not in the primaries. So I think that that neoliberalism is deeply wrapped into what I call the neo-spirituality. And so if you look on Instagram, it's there's incredible stuff going on out there. But the, the most, you know, the biggest followers, the biggest influencers are white women of privilege who are suggesting that many ills can be saved by, for example, I happen to hone in onto this doTERRA oil thing. It's just a tool for me to get certain messages out. People think I'm like against this doTERRA oil. I'm not. I make videos making fun of the conflagration. Is that a word? Sure. <laughs> I think it is. The, the, that's not a word I don't think. But anyways, um, of the person who represents themselves as a spiritual leader and teacher that's also a saleswoman and is trying to sell products while suggesting that, you know, the precepts of yoga, which are inner transformation and consciousness reveal, that somehow these products like essential frankincense oil is going to um, elaborate on this, that might be the case for an extremely privileged few. So if you have the space to like do a daily meditation every day and set up a little crystal altar with feathers and have the money to buy a set of doTERRA oil and put it on, there's nothing wrong to brag. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's also nothing to brag about. And because that's easy as fuck, you know, like great. You've got a nice space where you can get quiet and put oils on like that means nothing to me in terms of spiritual transformation, you know? And just as I always say, like, if you're a monk, a male monk, great big deal. You're enlightened. I really don't even think the Dalai Lama deserves any credit. He's been fed by people, clothed by people, picked as a child his whole life. If you did that to me, I'm telling you, I would, like, be much more evolved than the Dalai Lama right now. I did have this unbelievable um, yoga teacher at one point who was so deep and so amazing and so mm-hmm. brilliant who used to say it's easier to be a monk than it is to be a mother. So some people are like, well, you make money teaching yoga, so how can you criticize it? That's literally like saying you live in America, how can you criticize it? Mm-hmm. That is what our purpose is, is to speak our voice, activism. So I can be a part of the yoga world and the commodified yoga world and still criticize it. To me, that's the cult of posit- positivity that's extremely detrimental to what, like, in yoga, the most common word for that is viveka, for, like, intellectual discrimination, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so You mean the, the emphasis on always having to be positive yes. as some sort of, without, critis- without a critical yes. mind? Yes, and that if you're going to take part in something, one, you don't have the right to criticize it, and that 
positivity is and um, support are held as the highest, you know, at the highest pinnacles in this mm-hmm. neo-spiritual world. And that is actually quite the opposite of what yoga is about. Yoga is actually about tearing things apart. Mm-hmm. Can we hear more about that? Um, more about what yoga is actually about? Because you said earlier, yes. downward dog vinyasa versus actual yoga. And I wrote mm-hmm. that down because I was like, what mm-hmm. do you think okay, actual well, yoga is? Okay, well, you know, I get there's like lit groups on the internets that argue about this for hours. So I, I want to say right now I am not giving a definition for yoga. It's, you know, it's people so literally yeah. argue about this. But one thing it is not is the physical shapes. That's 100% for sure. There's never, there's like three mentions of physical stuff in any of the yoga texts mm-hmm. um m- only one more specifically in the text that most people use in the yoga world which mm-hmm. are the sutras you know there's one mention of asana and it does not describe a single thing of what we do the most colloquial definition is like a still and steady seat um so the movements uh so hard to get into because i uh, when i say it i also hear people be like that is wrong and people you know mm-hmm. but um the movements were mostly brought to us, you know, in the last 50 years, mostly influenced by one man, Krishnamacharya, who's an amazing dude. Then his information was disseminated by like three other dudes, Patabi Joyce, who's also now being accused, has always been, but it's now more in the public for sexually harassing the students during adjustments. Iyengar, who doesn't have so far any sexual uh, harassment <laughs> accusations, and Desikachar, whose son actually does, but he hasn't so far. So there's like three kind of strains of physical movement that came from there. But yoga itself is a philosophy and practice to discover sat-chit ananda, which means existence, knowledge, bliss. So it's tools to explore consciousness. A lot of the tools have to do with stillness and silence, ways to cultivate that stillness and silence to explore consciousness itself. So first, thought has to be explored. So that's like becoming the witness, the sakshi, and exploring the flux of the mind. Mm -hmm. And then um, the idea is that through that perspective, through that little distance or space between the observer and the thing being observed there's a shift in perspective so that it is possible behaviors could change as you have that little reprieve and relief from feeling reaction that are usually um, so close together that there's not time, right? We call that like a toddler is very reactive, right? So that's mm-hmm. like toddler behavior. So we're not stuck reaction. in our stories for our whole Yeah. Lives. And then through practices that have to do with um there, there's devotional practices. You know, it comes from India, so it's deeply linked to Hinduism. So there's the Hindu pantheon of gods, the gods that are involved, the codification of these practices. So it started before language, and then when language came, it was codified in Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it, I think the easiest way to think about it is, like, I often say this in class, like, the first Neanderthal homo sapiens who became aware of their breath, they went wow and then they sang right mm-hmm. like we know that they sang from like the way the molars were you know um worn down rather than just functional grunting and groaning mm-hmm. like for survival so it was like the first realization that breath is consciousness and then really the next thing was art right we found the paintings on the cave walls and we found artifacts in the the strata of the earth so if you think about like a saber-toothed tiger trying to kill you, but you somehow were like, 
this is so incredible that I have to whittle a tiny little miniature silver basket inlaid with pearls. You know, like that's what those are the things they found at the peoples who lived by the, mm. by the oceans. So I would say that's the beginning of yoga, right? How I'm contemplating the power of consciousness that's beyond language, that's beyond linguistics. Mm. And then these fast forward to the writing of Sanskrit. So then, you know, all the places in the world, the plains, the oceans, the mountains, the Himalayas, all different people doing this at the same time. These particular people in India were like, wow, I just, you know, I figured out if I sit still for three hours and focus on the movement of the diaphragms, they didn't know the name diaphragm back then, but this crazy stuff that's happening in my body called breath, I just discovered that consciousness is this kind of energetic power that's like gravitational waves moving through my body I'm going to write that down like this like and so began the text you know Mm -hmm. like when you sit for this long you will feel this thing called prana you know we know that in physics and science this is true they're measuring the gravitational waves from the big bang right now in these tunnels called LIGO tunnels you know so like they're they're imperceptible to the human body but they do go through the human body so i will say like the early yogis were tuning themselves into the point where you could feel like the gravitational mm-hmm. waves that these special tunnels can only register right now you know wow i think what you're saying in terms of you're going back to your videos and yes, the criticism yes. that you're having is that you're is is that again it's like yoga has been commodified and identity politics has been commodified and all of it is being used kind of by you know for instagram followings and for you know by, yeah and by, also and, through like true like late stage capitalism you know that's what like I mean. yeah exactly yeah. so exactly and so like we are now taking this very crazy mystical thing that i barely understand myself by the way if i sound like a know-it-all i know nothing about it i'm just like try to articulate in some way or another Yes, and then whittling it down into some, like, 1950s commercial message. Meanwhile, my opinion, acting like the modern neo-spiritual 1950s housewives, really, because it's mother saying, like, this is how you make the food for the child perfectly, and if you get this crystal, this feather, and this oil, and you can manage it all yourself, like, you know, and basically do it all, you know, which is a lot of references that my videos have like pretending to be the woman who can do it all which I'm kind of riffing from the you know that 80s commercial Angeli perfume you know um I bring on the bacon I fry it up in mm-hmm. a pan never 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 let you forget you're a man Angeli. no I'm talking about you're no, too young but... yeah you can look it up you'll see it okay. um but <laughs> then okay so that's one thing right one some of it's just pure I just think it's hysterical and you know, I just like to make fun of it. I'm just sarcastic and obscene. I'll make fun of it. The other thing is I find it racially charged, which is going to trigger a lot of people. Because if you put any of these new age aphorisms or platitudes and then add, if you're right, they all work perfectly. One door opens when another door closes. If you're white, just do that to any of them. It works. You know what I'm saying? Like, think about this right now. Like, imagine the lady on Instagram writing if one door opens another one closes or the universe provides and then going into an immigration cage where there's children without their parents sitting and telling that to the children right that's absolutely inapplicable and fucked up so I like to know that whatever I say could is going to sit okay with a lot of different people mm-hmm. right um I mean as a teacher yes as a teacher and I find it very irresponsible to be 
sending these messages out, which are simply not true, economically untrue. You can't, this idea of abundance, people hashtag abundance and say that like money is energy. That is, in my opinion, offensive and irresponsible and actually white supremacist behavior because it's absolutely not abundant. And one person, there are six white males who own Everything. I don't know the number, but it's Everything. basically the combined wealth of the West of the world. And no matter how people shift their minds or their intellect through meditation, that's not going to change that shit. It's changed through activism, politics, and in my opinion, moving towards socialism with a democratic right. End. And what so? And can I just add to that? I just want to yes. add to that that and what makes it particularly scary is the additional factor of outrage culture and identity politics and pe- people not being able to speak freely without being yes. eviscerated. Yes. Like yes. you add that on top of it and then we are set up for totalitarian society. Yes. I believe in correct language when we're talking mm. about people of color and women. You know, like I I had to gender. learn myself about how to speak about things. And I will say that social mm. media helped me with that. Certain groups I'm yeah, in on and Facebook. Some of the discomfort is helpful because it forces you to. No, but I just want to And I know myself. you're not talking about No, but what that. I'm yeah. saying is, what I'm saying is for people that want to learn, like, mm. like yes, we yes. all have to correct. We all have to change. We have to learn, but we have to do it together. We have to learn from each other. We yes. have to speak to each other. Yes. And I think and, that's yeah. true, but I think there is going to be this time which we're in now where it's going to be, you know, like the men are saying, this feels like a witch hunt with the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's kind of got to go through this intensity. And I, you know, definitely step back from commenting certain things. Sometimes I can't help myself on social media. I'm just going to like make a trolley comment I just can't I have to like sit on my hands and I can't look at it I've had any tequila you know um but um sometimes I just let myself make a fucked up comment to people but I would but I I do think that we have to kind of move through this pain of such sensitivity because I have a lot of issues with certain things that happened and are happening in the Me Too movement, but also I think it ne- it has to happen. What is um, the biggest risk you've ever taken in your life? Oh. Or a risk you feel? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I would say the first thing that comes to me is home birth. Um, just like going into that uh, arena, and I uh, loved it and did it twice. And but I felt, especially at the time when I had my first child, like people, you know, I have like gynecologist older male friends who called me and said I'd kill the baby you know so it felt like risky in the Mm. you know 15 years ago and now it's not quite as much anymore I mean people are more used to it and it's something I'd wanted to do my whole life so I feel like that was a risk I took having my first baby at home with friends and having a life-changing experience of labor that is one of those things that I just like great I've done that I loved that that was incredible it was a risk I took I'm glad I did it Maybe I could say a risk I took was being a yoga teacher and not, you know, trying to make more money. Not that Mm -hmm. I don't, not that I, you know, I'm saying that wasn't a plan, but I'm like, yeah, that was a kind of risky life choice, Mm -hmm. like to be kind of always a little bit precarious financially, Mm -hmm. but feel actually pretty good inside, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And what is, and do you have, do you feel like you have any sources of shame? Oh, shame about things I've, ways I've treated my kids, you know, when I've lost my shit. That's the most shameful feeling as a mother, you know, knowing that you just, there was no reason to get that angry 
you know, physically manhandling my son when he's taking me to the edge, you know, grabbing his arm, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, terrible. You know, Mm -hmm. you just got to like lean into that and work with it and try to find tools to be better the next time. Um, uh, definitely shame after drinking too much tequila and, you know, acting more like myself, which can be a little annoying for people. Um, I can get very like politically angry. I walked out of the ninth grade potluck not that long ago because the host told me they were a fiscal conservative, but socially liberal. And I just walked out Mm -hmm. and now it's like going around the school and people hate me. Um, yeah, that kind of thing. How do you deal with when people, like, being, like, when you speak your mind and being disliked? Yeah, usually I would write an email and be like, I'm so sorry, like, that it was the tequila speaking. This time I decided to just be okay with that. And, like, I know that there's a couple of people that really hate me right now. Um, And I'm just like, that's okay. You know, I just feel, I felt like I was going to be fine. I'm sure there's tons of people who hate me, but I'm just saying... uh, (laughs) I'm okay with knowing them and knowing that they're not, don't agree with what I did. And it was, you know, it probably wasn't cool to walk out. It was a sweet party with a lovely host. It was just a small thing. But yet I'm just going to, I was kind of leaning into maybe not making the right decision, you know. Mm-hmm. Just being okay just with like yeah. But generally yourself. I try to make it better. I'm, u- I'm not always, I'm usually not good with it. And mm-hmm. I try to make it better and send like apology notes. And- okay, so what um, is your definition of self-acceptance? Oh. Or how would you, how do you think about self-acceptance? <sighs> I'm like trying to feel it now myself. Um, <laughs> what does it mean? To I you? mean, so different for everybody, right? For me, I guess um, letting go of guilt um, mm. whilst still remaining kind, you know, and empathetic. So, you know, when I think when I act unkindly, it gives me guilt, you know. So, a way to re- to know when guilt is inappropriate and when guilt is you know you might have a little guilt for acting like a jerk you know Mm -hmm. um so being able to really suss through that you know to see through those layers um and you know aging gracefully and to me gracefully means owning the age I feel that's really the most I feel the most self-acceptance now than ever you know as the aging process yeah I would say definitely if I look back at you know the height of my youth beauty um when I think about the things I was annoyed with, you know, it's just so, I just so don't care, you know? Mm. I would say, like, I'm more, yes, that aging, the aging process has helped me to become self-accepting, and maybe they're, like, a little, you know, work together, you mm-hmm. know? Like, self-accepting helps the aging process. Right. Um, mm-hmm. um, I think it means, yeah, being a present mother, vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's weird for people who don't, who aren't my husband, but it's actually kind of hard for me to be vulnerable, mm. <laughs> which probably is, doesn't sound like that. And to be like actually, um, not defensive at all. And there that's like definitely my hardest thing to the outer world. It's easy to the inner sanctum, super hard for me. Mm. So I would say the more I accept myself, the more I'm able to just reveal that vulnerability and tenderness with my partner. Mm. Um, because the partner, you know, I'm looking at your mom because we have this issue, you know, we'll, we can project or they represent that parental figure is when we've been together this long, you know, to me, that would be like the ultimate reveal of self-acceptance. Like when I was able to really 
step into that partnership in that way, which still hasn't happened, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's something to look forward to. Mm. And say, and is what you're saying, and, and that's be an able, amazing thing to, to admit yes. as like someone who's been in a marriage for 20 years. I can yeah. say, I can say, I'm just learning that now. Yeah. I, I feel exactly the same. Oh, yeah. Way. And constant like work, just, always. Mean, but I just want to clarify yeah. is what you're saying that just, just to be able to admit your vulnerability, mm. admit your need, and not be the baby. Like, it's not the baby crying for the need, but it's the actual adult. Yes. And be able to caretake, because oddly enough, that's also harder for me to do in that relationship. Um, mm-hmm. So so both to be to be able to ask for things really, and to be able to caretake with no feeling of resentment and bitterness, mm. you know, and, mm. you know, to love fully. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is and I feel like it's just two steps. It's like mm. the pushing stage in birth. It's like one step forward, two steps back. Mm-hmm. You know, every mm-hmm. time I think I've gotten something, then I'll. The next day, I'm like, oops, foiled again. You know, right, fucked right, up. Right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I really relate to that. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Anyway. Okay. Yes, yes. Thank you, Thank you so, so much. much. Oh, this my God. Amazing. Thank you. Amazing. Everything and more than I could dream of. Yes. Oh, thank you I so much. I feel like I just got to endure I could nice. go forever. Good, good. Yeah. Fun. Me okay. too. I love that cult of positivity. Oh, we, hit a lot of, we hit a lot of notes, ladies. Of notes. You know? We hope you were inspired by this episode. Until next week, that's it from me, Elisa. And me, Lily. If you agree that facades separate us and being radically honest brings us together, help spread the movement for radical self-acceptance by sharing this episode and subscribing to our podcast. You can also watch our videos by subscribing to our YouTube channel and following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook using the handle at StyleIQ. That's the letter U instead of the word U. And check out our book, True Style is What's Underneath, The Self-Acceptance Revolution on Amazon or at a local bookstore near you. We can't skip ahead to a happy ending or live inside a photoshopped image or an Instagram filter. There's no finding oneself when glossing over the truth. Do you like video games? Do you love PlayStation? Then I may just have the podcast for you. My name is Colin Moriarty, co-host of Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, a weekly show dedicated to all things PlayStation 4, PlayStation VR, PlayStation Vita, and soon enough, PlayStation 5. Since I started professionally covering the gaming industry in 2002, a lot has changed. Games are deeper, more immersive, and more beautiful than ever. They're bringing players on adventures we never quite knew were possible and changing lives through the positivity of escapism. Our show celebrates all of that with a weekly burst of news and analysis and a healthy dose of laughs, too, mostly delivered via my co-host, comedian, YouTuber, and gamer, Chris Raygun. If you're gigantic nerds like us with a passion for the PlayStation ecosystem, past, present, and future, we hope you'll join us for Sacred Symbols, available on CastBox and pretty much anywhere else you download your podcasts. I'm Kyla Coleman. You might know me from Cycle 24 of America's Next Top Model. I have a brand new podcast called Not So Glamorous. On this podcast, I'll be taking off the eyeshadow, trading in my heels for some comfy shoes, and I'll tell you all about what happens before, during, and after the runway. Each week, I'll be covering a different topic in the world of modeling on Not So Glamorous. Find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you soon.